had a procedure done this past Thursday for the bronchoscopy, and it went down my throat. I didn't realize, I wasn't told it would affect my voice the way it has. We're going to go as far as my voice goes, and uh, when it quits, we'll sing a little more. And then I'll try to get my voice back and preach a little longer. If it quits again, uh, we'll have something else for you. So please uh, bear with us. If you're visiting, please know my voice is usually a little bit louder than this. It'll be the first time I've ever preached with uh, Burt's Bees in my mouth. (laughs) So praise God for the simple things. We are going through a New Testament passage which surveys the Old Testament to see how God has provided patterns or types in ages past. These types look to the future. They foretell a fulfillment in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. I have to admit, this is not the usual way that a defense of Christianity from the Old Testament is given. Usually what would happen is we would point out prophetic passages that speak of various aspects of the life of Christ, and we would see their fulfillment in his life. We would understand that this book, written centuries before Christ's life, could not know that information. It's impossible for them to have all that information, and yet Christ indeed fulfills it. Things like Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 that says, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, or Psalm 22 that reveals details of the death of Jesus, or 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16 that indicates the Messiah would be the son of David. And on and on it goes, dozens and dozens of these prophecies. Rather, what we're doing here is looking at large swaths of Israel's history to draw parallels that they are types of Jesus. We do affirm that the only proper way to interpret Scripture is the literal, grammatical, and historical and contextual approach to the Bible. If you're wondering how should one interpret the Bible, you just got the answer. This is the very method that the writers of Scripture used when they would interpret earlier writings in the Bible. They used a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual approach. Indeed, this is the normal way any literature at any time, is to be interpreted. It is the way you interpret the conversations that you have throughout the week. It is the way you try to understand the novels that you read or the sports page that you try to decipher. It is the way you are interpreting my words right now as I speak to you. Even in the speech by Stephen here in Acts 7, you can see him interpreting the entire flow of Old Testament history as literal history. People say, should I take the Bible literally? Well, if you don't, you don't believe it. Because if it's not literally true, it's not true in some some distant sense. That's just redefining what's there. It is literal history. It has literal meaning. And to believe in Christ is to believe what it says literally. If you don't believe it literally, you're not a believer. Here in Acts chapter 7, it's a clear example of the New Testament interpreting the Old Testament as it was intended. We could even call it, instead of literal interpretation, we could call it normal interpretation. Normal interpretation allows for similes and metaphors and symbolic language, along with types, with their 
antitype in the New Testament. But it always takes its cues from the author and is never inventive in interpretation. It never seeks a deeper meaning than the plain meaning given in the Bible. You may have heard of biblical types before and you wonder, what are they? Why do, why do theologians and pastors talk about biblical types? A type is a prophecy, but not given in words. A type is a prophetic picture. Rather than providing a prophecy of things to come, although God does do that, God would also provide a person and have that person go through certain events, and those events would foretell a greater person who was coming and would go through similar events to bring about something that God was going to do. A type is someone doing something in the Old Testament that serves as a foreshadowing of the greater one to come. In Romans 5 and verse 14, it records that Adam, quote, was a type of Christ who was to come. Even Adam, the very first man in the world, was a type. Why was he a type? Because he was the head of a race. Jesus is called in the New Testament the second Adam. Interesting, isn't it? Why? Because he's the head of a new race, a race that's going to populate this world. Jesus will return. He'll stand on this planet and his followers will reign with him in this world. He is indeed the second Adam in the fullest sense of the term. As Adam was placed on the planet and told to rule, Christ will come back on the planet and he will rule. When Abraham offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar, his only son, that is, his son of promise, that was a type of what? God offering up the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. It even says that in Hebrews 11. We read it earlier. We at least got that far. Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received Isaac back as a type. There it is again. And there are many other Old Testament types that pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus told us to look for these types in the Hebrew Bible. He said this in John 5:34. He was speaking to the unbelieving Jews. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these, that is, these Old Testament scriptures, that testify about me. So he wasn't referring just to the Messianic Psalms. He said there are patterns and types in the Old Testament that look forward to a greater one to come. Now some people get carried away with these types, and they find types everywhere. And so they start to interpret the Bible allegorically, saying that the plain meaning isn't the true meaning. There's a deeper and more spiritual meaning, and they go off with what they think it is. A problem with that is then the reader is in charge of the meaning rather than the author being in charge of the meaning. The author of Scripture chose his words very carefully. We're to listen to that author and let him guide us in the meaning. When we start to say, well, I see this in here and I see that in here, then we become the authority of Scripture rather than the text of Scripture the voice of the Holy Spirit. So there's a danger in overdoing types. We know that if something is a type, the text should draw a clear indication, either through a direct statement that it's a type or through a very obvious pattern that you'd look, read, and you read about Christ's life, you can say, wow, those are really similar. Dr. Vlock of the Master's Seminary in his theology notes writes, 
A historical grammatical approach to the Bible indicates that there are many Old Testament types that pointed towards superior New Testament antitypes. These, thus, types are a very real part of God's revelation. But we do not see the need to argue that there is the need for typological interpretation. That is, in addition to historical grammatical interpretation. That's the end of his quote. In other words, typology is present when the patterns are conspicuous. The patterns stand out. But we don't resort to trying to find a type or an allegory under every Old Testament rock. We follow what the text itself says. We don't try to contort every happening in every person's life in the Old Testament to be counter to something in the New Testament. That's just not good interpretation. Now, last time we were in Acts 7, we saw that Joseph was a type of Jesus Christ. He was a type from the Old Testament. Stephen himself was drawing that connection in his speech. The parallels are pretty obvious to anyone who reads the text. Joseph was rejected by his brothers, just like Jesus. Joseph was sold to Egypt for pieces of silver as Jesus was betrayed also by someone very close to him, one of his apostles, with 30 pieces of silver. Joseph revealed himself to his brothers after a second encounter with them, so it will be with Christ. The Jews did not understand he was their king the first time. They crucified him. He hasn't given up on the Israeli nation. He will return to them. They will recognize it the second time. They will weep and mourn for him, and he will rule over the Jewish nation. This will happen. Joseph was rejected. He ended up as the ruler over his brethren. And Joseph ended up preserving all of his clan from starvation. Jesus is that greater antitype in the New Testament. He fulfills the patterns and the events in the Old Testament. He will be revealed at his second coming. As I said, he will rule over his brethren. The Old Testament really does point forward. It points forward to a fulfillment, to Jesus Christ, to the testament that concerns his life and his death and his resurrection and his work. So we turn again to Acts 7, verses 1 through 53. Today what we're going to see is that Moses also was a type of Christ. There were aspects of Moses' life that foreshadowed the coming of a greater prophet for Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And since it's a long section, and since I'm already struggling, we'll kind of read it as we go along, okay? Let's remember our outline first. Stephen was making a defense based upon the fourfold accusations leveled against him back in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 6. The false witnesses who were slandering him and trying to get him in trouble, they slandered him, remember, of blaspheming, blaspheming God, speaking against Moses, speaking against the law of Moses, and then speaking against their great temple that they had there, Herod's temple. So in response to that, Stephen is giving a defense. But he's not so much concerned with defending himself as he is in laying out all the truth for everyone and turning the tables on them so that they will understand that they're the ones really that are uh, you know, on trial rather than him. First, and we covered this last time, he's, um, Stephen speaks of God's glory and God's promises, and those are highlighted from verse 2 all the way through verse 16. Second is about Moses, and he's explained in verses 17 through 37. We'll be there today. And then third, kind of mixed in right with that, since Moses gave the law, he addresses the law more directly in verses 38 through 43, and he ends up talking about the tabernacle leading to the temple in verses 43 through 50, and then has 
a conclusion in verses 51 to 53. So we're in point number two, Stephen's view of Moses, starting in verse 17. What we see here is that Moses was used by God to fulfill the promises that were made to Abraham. It reads, But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. That's talking about the Israeli people, right? History for these Jewish people, for these Israelites, was running on a divine clock. God had already predestined everything to occur. And there was no way that God was going to leave his promises unfulfilled. This verse says that God assured promises to Abraham. That word assured, if you look at it closely, in Greek it's actually the word confessed. In other words, God made a confession to Abraham. He told him something he was going to do. The word came out of his mouth, and when the word comes out of God's mouth, it's as good as gold, even better. Jewish history was running on a divine clock. Jewish history was also running on divine energy. Why? Because the people of Israel were multiplying. They were growing. The descendants increased greatly. This was to fulfill God's word to Abraham in Genesis 15, verses 5 through 6. It says there that God took Abraham outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And God said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then Abraham, or Abram, that time, believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Indeed, the number of the descendants was becoming like the sand on the seashore or like the stars in the sky. God is, beloved, faithful to his word. Please always remember that. Romans 3, 4 says, let God be found true even if every man is found a liar. Everyone around you may lack integrity, they may lie, they may exaggerate, but you can count on the word of God. You can count on the Bible. You can't count on your professors. You can't count on scientists all the time. You can't count on lawyers. You can't count on politicians. You can't count on other leaders. You can always count on the word of God. However, at this time, the many descendants of Abraham were not living the good life. They were enslaved. They were oppressed. Notice in verse 18 and 19, it says, Until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers, so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. In other words, purposefully kill the most vulnerable among them. That term until gives the historical flow. Things were good for a while in Egypt because of Joseph and his influence. That's kind of where the type breaks down. Joseph's deliverance is inferior to the deliverance that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to his people. After an undesignated period of time, The descendants of the patriarchs, maybe these are the grandkids, the great-grandkids, the great-great-grandkids, somewhere down there as they're multiplying, a different king arises and starts to mistreat them. The king of Egypt, of course, means the pharaoh, right? The king is not named, contra the, the movie that I really like, the Ten Commandments. It's not Ramses. He's not the pharaoh. It's interesting the Bible doesn't record his name. Remember what Pharaoh said, I don't know who the Lord is. Why should I obey him? Well, the Lord left his name out of Scripture because it wasn't all that important. (laughs) What is important is that this new king had no loyalty to Joseph. You say, how can those things be? Oh, we see things change in our country quickly, right? It's easy to see how this would change. This king was evil. He's described here as shrewd, wily. 
He showed his trickiness. He took advantage of the Israelites. He mistreated them. His motive is provided in the words from Exodus 1. Come, let us deal wisely with the Israelites, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. They were afraid of the size of the Israelites. Earthly governments are established by God. It says that in Romans 13. Why are they established by God? To punish evildoers, to reward those who do good. That's the purpose of government. But this king abused his power, and he committed two great evils, slavery and infanticide. We cannot go quickly past this mention of Israel's slavery without mentioning mentioning how evil it was in our own country, in our own country's history. African men and women, made in the very image of God, were raided and kidnapped by other Africans, sold to Europeans, forcibly put on ships, then brought to the new land and bought and sold if they survived the journey, dehumanized, forced to labor in America against their will, mistreated time and time again, sometimes killed without any impunity at all. The entire slave trade was contrary to the proper treatment of our fellow man, and it was evil. Evil and cruelty is not confined to the Egyptians and to the Romans, but it is now. It's part of the fall of man. It's part of all continents. It's part of all people groups. Slavery itself has not ended in the world. We think it has, but it hasn't. We read over the last couple of years of the militant Muslims in Nigeria primarily, other other places as well. Boko Haram is one group that's called where they enslaved, they raided, gathered, and enslaved Christian girls in Nigeria, carried them off, forced them to be brides of the different Muslim warriors. There are other kinds of slavery going on in the world today. It is an evil indeed. The Bible does not condone slavery. The Bible always speaks of the value of freedom. Wayne Grudem, in his wonderful book, Christian Ethics, writes this, Slavery and oppression are always viewed negatively in Scripture, while freedom is viewed positively. In fact, Wayne Grudem goes on to point out that God brought Israel out of the house of slavery. He didn't want them remaining as slaves. But after they entered the land, and then they turned their back on God who had delivered them, As judgment, God gave them over again to oppressors who came and enslaved them all over in their own land. Judges Judges chapter 2, verses 16 to 23 speaks of that. Grudem goes on to write this, Loss of freedom was a judgment, not a blessing. That is why one blessing promised in the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 61 was that the coming deliverer would free the people from oppression by their enemies, for he would proclaim liberty to the captives, verse 1. Individual liberty was also prized, for although people in Israel would sometimes sell themselves into slavery as a solution to some form of severe poverty, the Jubilee year would come every 50 years to set free those who had thus been enslaved. That's according to the law in Leviticus 25.10. That's the end of the quote. God did let the Israelites go through this slavery, yet God is not the author of evil. God is the deliverer. God is good. Evil never comes from God. We who believe in the sovereignty of God over all affairs should never define that in such a way 
that God is the one who directly causes evil. God causes the second causes, that is, he creates beings like us and angels that have choices. And from those choices come the evil. Evil comes from the creature, never from the creator. James reminds us of this in chapter 1, verse 13. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Let us remember there are great spiritual lessons to be learned from times of injustice. People that suffer in injustice tend over time to grow strong spiritually. The second great evil that this king did was infanticide. He commanded their babies to be exposed after birth and die from the elements. That is brutal. That is barbaric. We cannot go quickly past this either. Besides just being cruel, this has the smell of Satan all about it. What did God promise to Abraham? Your children will multiply and be like the stars of heaven. I'm sure Satan knew about that. And here he is trying to destroy Abraham's posterity trying to nullify the very promise that God had made to Abraham. It is the mark of an evil society to abuse the very least among them who have no voice at all for their own rights. In the law, God spoke against mistreating orphans and mistreating widows. They were the most vulnerable in that society. How much more mistreating babies who are still in their mother's womb? Today, the pro-choice movement and the politicians and the feminists, as they call themselves, which the liberal media very happily promotes, the Democratic Party sustains and puts in power, foist on our nation a similar great evil. They unashamedly continue their heinous support of a violent and a brutal killing of unwanted, unborn babies. They defend the practice They justify it. They resist anyone who wants to try to uh, come up with new law to protect them. And this is true from their presidents, the presidents of the Democratic Party, all the way down to the local representatives. They own it. They own this sin. It is called a woman's right, but a life is too precious to be cast aside on the grounds of a right just because a baby is unwanted. It still remains the murder of the most innocent human beings in our society. It is now, as you know, legitimized, lawful, without limits in all 50 states. The liberal support of abortion in our land has resulted in a violent, bloody end to over 60 million, say that again, 60 million of our nation's babies since 1973. Roe versus Wade. This is a greater number killed by far than even that done by Pharaoh. Other than blaspheming the name of God and promoting false religion against Jesus Christ, there is no evil in the United States of America going on worse than that. Well, it is into this evil environment that Moses was born. Please notice in verses 20 and 22, It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Verse 22, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. Evidently, Moses didn't agree with that, because when he got the call, the first thing he complained about was his inability to what? To speak. I can't speak well. Let Aaron do it, remember? 
But God knew about his training. He knew he'd been actually prepared. He had had great training and preparation. He had no excuse. It's amazing to me that in the providence of God, he would take one of these helpless little babies that was condemned to die by the great king, the great pharaoh, was hidden among the reeds in the Nile River, and use that innocent, helpless baby to one day bring down the entire might and authority of the Egyptian empire. Isn't that amazing? God's justice isn't just right, it's poetic at times. Moses was born a Hebrew, a lovely child. He was first fed and cared for at home. You know the rest of the story. Stephen doesn't go into all the details. It would take too long. But Moses was taken by Pharaoh's daughter, brought to the palace, raised as her own son. So he had all the comforts and all the privileges and all the education of the Egyptians. That included the ability to write and to write very well. People used to criticize that the early books of the Bible could not have been written by Moses because they didn't know how to write at that time. Not only could they write then, they could write a thousand years before Moses was born. We now know that. And so those critics of the Bible were exposing their prejudice. No, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and he received that training from Egypt. We owe something to the Egyptians right here. How about that? Well, God would use him as the first writer of Scripture, the beginning of what we call the Hebrew canon of inspired text. It goes on, verse 23. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind, interesting how it said, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Can you just hear the attitude? You did not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Well, This section largely speaks for itself. Stephen recounts this episode earlier in Moses' life to show how the Israelites at first rejected even him. Here they were bragging about Moses, accusing Stephen of having a bad attitude towards Moses, and he says, but your fathers, the Jews, they, they shunned and pushed away Moses at his first attempt of being the deliverer. Don't you remember the history? Don't you remember what's in your own scriptures? Again, this is what happened with Joseph. He was rejected by his brothers. This is what happened with Jesus. He was rejected by the Jews. In God's providence, somehow it was put in Moses' mind, we're not told how, to act on behalf of the Israelites. He's 40, he's contemplated a situation. He looks at their plight and he said, I'm going to go and I'm going to begin to deliver. I'm going to find out what's, what's going on over there. I'm going to offer myself. Sometimes God does that. God places a burden or a desire in the heart of people. It moves forward his agenda. Well, Moses tried to to demonstrate that act. He struck down the Egyptian. He was probably an Egyptian that was in authority, and so killing him was probably a very big deal. The next day, these two Israelites are attacking each other. This disturbed Moses. The words of one of them are used to show the general attitude of the Israelites toward Moses. Who made you a ruler or a judge over us? When Moses saw that his deed was not taken the way that he meant it, he was driven away. He ran. He fled. He fled in the desert. He went through a very large desert, by the way, all the way across it to a place called Midian. 
And there he met Jethro, and he became the son-in-law of Jethro, and he married a woman named Zipporah, according to Exodus 2.21. And he had two boys, as Stephen says here. Their names are recorded in Exodus 18, verses 3 and 4, Gershom and Eleazar. Well, this encompasses then this life in the wilderness the next 40 years for Moses. In fact, you can kind of divide Moses' life into three 40-year segments. You have the 40 years that he was growing up in the palace. Then you have the 40 years he's in the wilderness in Midian, and not too much is going on. He's shepherding sheep there. He's growing a family. And then you have the 40 years where he leads the Exodus. He lived to be 120 years old. Stephen continues, verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. I want to make a point about that in a minute. Verse 33, but the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This burning bush scene makes me wish I had my full voice back, because I would be shouting about it. It's one of the most dramatic and memorable in all of divine history. Can you imagine it? Think of a very arid, rocky, rugged terrain, mountain peaks that get pretty high, The sheep don't think of a green pasture. Think of them having to move from area to area. And off in the distance, in some kind of a cove or in a cliff or somewhere, there's a bush, and it's a flame. And this catches Moses' eye. It was not uncommon, by the way, for a, a bush in the wilderness to catch on fire. That was not what was uncommon. What was uncommon is he kept looking at it, and it kept burning. And that can't happen, because it's very arid, it's hot, And when it burns, it would burn for a few minutes. It would be over with, right? If you've ever seen a wildfire, you know it burns through with intensity and it's over. Um, So it would be combustible. It would burn. It would be gone. But it keeps looking. He's gathering his sheep. And there's just something not right about that. This is where God first revealed himself to Moses. It is where Moses was called to be Israel's deliverer. This is why people can't call themselves into ministry, by the way. They can't just say, hey, this is a good idea. I'm going to be in ministry. Moses tried, it didn't work so well. Then God called him, and then God's power was behind the movement, you see. Here Stephen says that an angel appeared to Moses. The Old Testament is more definitive. It says, the angel of the Lord. Do you know that phrase? The angel of the Lord. That's not just a common run-of-the-mill angel, and I don't mean any disrespect to any of the angels up there. I'm sure if just the smallest guy appeared to me, I would be trembling from him. But From heaven's perspective, this wasn't just an average angel. This was the angel of the Lord. If you do a study on the angel of the Lord, you see that this angel is a messenger of the Lord. But as he's talking, he talks as if he himself is the Lord. And that's because he is. And this is where you see a little bit of the mystery of the Trinity revealed in the Old Testament, where there is this being who is apart from the Lord and speaking for the Lord, but who is also the Lord. Now, an angel couldn't do that. An angel is a created being. But he's the messenger of the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ before he was called Jesus. Before he was born, we call this a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. He was the angel of the Lord. It's interesting, when you come to the New Testament after the birth of Jesus, you never hear about the angel of the Lord again. Why? Because he became a human being and he dwelled among us. 
This is the Lord Jesus Christ who appeared to Moses and was calling him. And if you just study that, like with Hagar in Genesis chapter 16 and verse 10, or Judges chapter 13 and verse 18 with Samson's parents, you see that he gives himself the name Wonderful, and he speaks as if he himself is God in the first person. This is God speaking to Moses. By the way, fire itself often was a symbol of the very presence of God, for God is a consuming fire. He's unapproachable, like fire, fire that burns hot, you can't approach it. Fire that burns hot purifies everything. That's how God is. And so it's a good symbol of God. Fire is not God, but it's a symbol sometimes of God's presence. Stephen describes the bush as a thorn bush. That information is not given in the Exodus passage, but that's the kind of a bush that grew out there. It's a very arid climate. There's not really a lot, not a lot of vegetation out there. It's not green. And so this is the kind of bush that would have been there. And that sign of a bush that would burn with a flame but never be consumed, that just captured his mind. And Moses drew near. And as he drew near, what he was really beholding was not a normal fire. What he was, what he was viewing was the Shekinah glory, the glory of God and his presence. When Moses approached closer, there was an audible voice that came to his ears. This was not in his mind. He was not crazy. It was a voice that came, and he called him Moses. Moses. Got to have a really deep voice to do that one well. Moses. <laughs> you know, like Charlton Heston, you know, he's there. Moses responded, here I am, as you present yourself to service to somebody. Here I am. I'm here. The voice identified himself as who? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What does that mean? Moses, the story that I started with Abraham 600 years before your life, it's continuing with you. It's not a different story. My plans haven't changed because Israel's been enslaved. It's all going forward just the way that I said it would go. Jesus would use this statement, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to prove to the Sadducees in his day that there was a resurrection from the dead. Because he didn't say, I used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or I was as if they're dead and gone. He says they're living, and I am their God. And from that, he helps, tries to help the Sadducees to understand there is indeed life and a resurrection as well. So this keeps the continuity of the story with Abraham. Moses' response to the true God of heaven, who noticed, came down. So how does that work? I thought God was everywhere. He is. But he wants us to think of his throne as lofty and high above. And so there will be various times where, with anthropomorphic language, we'll describe him as coming down to act or coming down to see. This man of God, Moses, shook with fear. He realized... He was alone with a holy, righteous, and powerful being. We should have that kind of awe when we come before God. God is not slap happy and fun. He is a being that we will have to give an account to. Moses had to learn early on. The first lesson we learn about God is not God is love. I'll say that again. 
The first lesson we need to learn about God is not God is love. The first lesson we need to learn is take your shoes off your feet. The ground you stand on is holy ground. You cannot come and approach me, God says. You cannot be in my presence. You're not okay the way you're living. You're not as good as the next guy. Take your shoes off your feet. This is holy ground. I'm a holy God. Only when you understand God is holy is his love impressive. Because a holy God looking at a sinful person should have that fire come out of the burning bush and consume him and leave him bones or dust. That's what God should do to me. God should not forgive me. God should not use me. God should not allow me to approach him. I was born in sin, I've lived sin, and you are the same as me. That's what God should do. When churches talk of the love of God, but forget these valuable lessons here in the Bible because they want everyone to feel good, come to church, feel good. By the way, give more money when you feel good, right? It's part of the strategy. They're not telling the truth. The truth is you're going to have to face this being one day. If you go in your own righteousness, you will be rejected. If you go trusting in the love of a God that says, yes, I should consume you, but I'm going to love you nonetheless. Why are you going to love me? For no reason other than God is love. And that is a lesson we need to learn about God, that he is compassionate. He's having compassion on those in slavery. He has compassion on those that are suffering. He does. He lets us suffer, true enough, but he brings it to a conclusion. And he teaches us even while we suffer. And then he acts on their behalf. Moses stood on holy ground. Listen, God dwells in all places. Many verses speak of God's omnipresence, correct? He lives everywhere. But there are places in this world where God has chosen to manifest his glory and presence more than others. One of those places was Mount Oreb, Mount Sinai. One of those places was that mountain where the temple ended up being and God's presence in the tabernacle in the temple. The greatest location God ever was on this planet was when Jesus was walking around because he was God walking around in a human body. He, all the fullness of deity dwelled in Christ in bodily form. So there are places that are more sacred than other places. Right now, in our New, Te- New Testament times, in the New Covenant, we're told that we ourselves are temple of the Holy Spirit who is inside of us and that we've been bought with a price. And so you're to treat your body with holiness and you represent God and God's presence to others when you go out and you tell them about Christ. Again, it's worth noting that this special manifestation of God was not at the temple site in the promised land. Mount Sinai is not in Israel. It was off the land. Stephen was reminding the Jews he was speaking to, wherever God is, that is where holy ground is. God's message to Moses is summarized in two statements. I have seen the affliction and burdens and sorrows of my people, notice, my people. And God was now acting to send Moses to deliver them. True freedom is found in slavery to God. They were God's people, not Pharaoh's people. God sent an ambassador to Egypt, let my people go. You have my people there. I'm in covenant with them. I made a covenant with Abraham. It was passed on to Isaac and Jacob. 
They're my people. Let them go. And Pharaoh, you know, he basically said no several times. Say yes, then he changed his mind and say no. Who is this God? I don't know who he is. Why should I obey him? And so we have the ten plagues. Are they to be taken literally? Of course they are. They were supernatural. They were supernatural judgments on a very powerful empire in this world. And God, through those judgments, basically revealed, you don't know who I am? Now you know who I am. And the first lesson he learned was not God is love. It was, here are the gnats, and here are the frogs, and here's your cattle dying, and here is the, finally the death to the firstborn of Egypt, where there was great crying that was going on. Sometimes it seems that God takes a long time before he does something. We want him to act. We pray for him to act. He doesn't act. And so it seems that he's distant. He's cold. He's uninterested in your life. He could care less what you go through. He could care less what you suffer, what you don't have, what opportunities you wish you'd be able to do. That's just not true. That is the message that Satan wants you to believe. That's his doctrine. And he teaches it well in the world all the time. Where's your God now? Well, when bad things happen, the world says, yeah, where's your God? But when good things happen, they don't say, yeah, God's with me. They don't give credit, they don't give credit to God, right? They steal from God all the time. I love 2 Timothy 2.13. It says, if, if we are faithless, if we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He doesn't follow us in our duplicity. There's so much more of the story in the Old Testament that Stephen skips, hundreds of details, but he's showing that Moses was called of God, that he believed in Moses as a true prophet of God. He was not speaking against Moses. But yet even the Israelites resisted Moses, just as they did Joseph's rule and just as they were resisting the Messiah. Notice verses 35 and 36. This Moses whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Notice how Stephen rightly applies that to the words not just of one man, but representing how the Israelites regarded him the first time he came to them. This Moses whom you disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. Verse 36, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. God sent Moses, they disowned Moses. Moses, by God's design, was ruler and deliverer. He was a king-like figure. He was also the savior of the people. That makes Moses a type of whom? Christ. Christ is our ruler. You don't like the current president or the next one who will replace him? Doesn't matter. We have a better ruler. We have Jesus Christ who rules us. You don't like the Congress? Doesn't matter. We have a ruler. If America falls and another ruler rises, doesn't matter. We have a ruler. We have a king. He's King Jesus. We salute him. We bow before him. We pledge our allegiance to him. God made Jesus ruler of the Jews. Say, but they killed him. They rejected him. He's still their king. Matthew 2, 2. The wise men arrived. And here's a little something for the Christmas season in case you want. Hey, where's the Christmas part in here? The wise men asked, where is he who's been born, what? King of the Jews. 
king of the Jews. For we saw a star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Palm Sunday, John 12, 13 records that the crowds took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet Jesus and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Son of David is the king of Israel. Matthew 27, verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? You know what he meant by that. And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. He confessed he was the king of the Jews. Matthew 27, 37, above Jesus' head on the cross, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, what? The king of the Jews. Peter preached in Acts 5.31, Jesus is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God made Jesus ruler of the Jews. God made Jesus ruler of the Jews because the ruler of the Jews is going to rule all of the other kingdoms of the world. That's why the Jews are so hated. Because Satan stirs up anti-Semitism against the Jews everywhere. Because Satan knows, the people don't know, Satan knows that this is the group that eventually is going to get saved and it's going to be their nation that rules over all the other nations. And Jesus is going to be the king of all of that. That's why when he returns in Revelation 19, he has a robe on him and written on his robe and on his thigh is the statement, is the declaration of his identity. This is the king of the kings and this is the Lord of all the lords. So if you're a king on earth and you're a lord, bow down and obey him. This is who he is. He is also the savior. He is the savior of the Jewish people. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says he's the savior of the Jews. He's also the savior of all mankind because the savior of the Jews is the savior of all mankind. In Matthew 1.21, the angel said to Joseph, your wife, Mary, will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, from their sins. The name Jesus means, short for Joshua, means the Lord saves. 1 John 4, 14. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Say, but there's other paths to God. There is not. There is one Savior. There is no other name Anybody can follow that will bring them to God. That includes Muhammad, that includes Buddha, that includes Mary, that includes Hare Krishna, Joseph Smith, or anyone anyone else. And we don't say that to insult people. We don't say that to offend them. We say that so they'll abandon their trust in those and put their trust in the only name that God acknowledges. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, a Savior. And then it names him, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 10, Paul says to Timothy, Join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus. And he did it from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death. Think about that. If there's something you ever wanted to abolish, it'd be what? Jesus came and abolished death. You say, well, why do people still die? He abolished death, and the resurrection is coming. And he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Listen, only those who confess Jesus as their ruler 
as their king can have Jesus as their deliverer and savior. Does that make sense? You have to pledge your allegiance to a king and a coming kingdom. When you do, the fact that you've been fighting against this king with living your own life your own way, the fact that you've been resisting this king, this king will pardon. He doesn't have a chip on his shoulders. He's not small-minded. He's not hateful. He's not spiteful. He will forgive and pardon all of your atrocities against his kingdom, all of your misdeeds, all of your resistance to his reign and rule. But you have to get on your knees and confess him as Lord. It says that in Romans 10.9, right? That if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, that means he rules, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be delivered. You'll be granted forgiveness, and you'll be able to join this great deliverer. Moses' deliverance lasted for a while. Jesus' deliverance lasts forever. Moses was the type Jesus is the greater anti-type. We praise God for him this Christmas season. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Thank you for this wonderful text that teaches us of your holiness, but also your compassion and mercy on those who hurt. Thank you for putting us in our place and reminding us we are but mere creatures, that we do not have life in ourselves, that we need life from your son. Bless these dear people who have come here today. Help them to think on these truths as they leave, to live their lives in an orderly way under the rule that you've given in scripture. Help those that are doubting, Lord, to believe. Help them to understand the truth. Help those who are hurting today to rely on your ultimate deliverance. Lord, help us to cling to you in all things, for you are the truth and you are faithful to your promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and beyond. And it is in the name of Jesus, our King and our Savior, we pray. Amen.